1: But it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all breathtaking hikes, kid friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at travelwyoming.com.
2: This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. This is the second episode of our two part story on the one straw revolution. Masanobu Fukuoka's Manifesto on Chizen Noho or the Natural Way of Farming. If you haven't heard the first part, I suggest you check your feeds and start from the beginning. When I first read this book, I was in my late teens. And I loved it. I took it super seriously. And I felt like I had found at least part of an answer to this question of: is there a way of farming, of relating to the land, that's not destructive? But when I tried my hand at it, it was not as simple as I thought. First of all, Fukuoka had started from a farm, one that already existed. But my starting place was a lawn. And if you've ever tried to plant something where there's lawn grass, well, you basically can't. So I broke one of the main principles of Shizen no Ho. I tilled. But after that, I tried to do it like Fukuoka did. I wasn't growing rice, but I did make seed balls. In the fall, I planted a cover crop, winter rye, a tall grass with pale blue seed heads. In the spring, I tamped down the rye-like straw, and I let my herbs go to seed, hoping they'd resow themselves for the next season. And while I had some successes, a lot of plants didn't come back. And some of the things that did were plants that are really good at taking over. So I had a lot of mint and sunchokes, a tuber which, by the way, is really hard for a lot of people, including me, to even digest. And so, this is a funny sentence to say out loud, but do-nothing farming is really hard. So what is it about this slim farming manual that has touched so many people? I know I came to my own garden with a lot of reverence for Masanobu Fukuoka, And even after my failures, I still feel that. But I do wonder how he actually pulled it off himself. And what about now? Is Shizen Noho still happening in that mountain orchard? These questions are actually answerable. Because his farm is a real place. It's on the island of Shikoku in southern Japan. And so, writer Hannah Kirschner looked it up. The farm has a website now, and an email address. So she just asked them, could she come see it? Here's Hannah.
3: The Fukuoka family farm is about an hour by train from the nearest city. And the local train to get there is just one car long, with velvety green and yellow seats. It takes me way out into the countryside, and the station where I get off is more like a bus stop, just a bench under a little shelter next to a busy road. It's late October, and I can smell smoke from farmers burning their rice fields after the harvest, but it's still pretty warm. We're at about the same latitude as San Diego. Oh, there's a Mikan tree. That's the citrus that this area is famous for. I've got about a 10-minute walk to meet Hiroki-san, Masanobu Fukuoka's grandson. Oh, and by the way, I'm using san now because that's just more polite in Japan, sort of like Mr. or Ms. Nice to meet you! Hiroki-san. Hiroki-san.
4: Hiroki-san. 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 Hiroki-san.
3: Hiroki-san greets me outside the warehouse, basically a garage where they're packing limes. He's 48 and has been in charge of the farm since he was 30. He's wearing pretty typical farmer clothes. Gray fleece turtleneck, tan cargo pants, work boots. He introduces his wife, Akiko-san. My Japanese is okay, but I am definitely not fluent, so... Two men he works with are here to help us with translation. Hiroki-san's biggest crops are rice and barley, which he grows in the valley, and citrus, most of which grows on the mountain. So first we're going to go see the
4: rice? Rice.
3: Most of Japan is really mountainous, so there just isn't much space for huge, continuous fields like you see in the US. Plus, rice planting and harvesting are a lot easier if you do the work communally. And you need infrastructure for water, so it just makes sense for everybody to cluster their fields together. And that's how it's been since as early as the 3rd century BCE. So Hiroki-san doesn't have, like, these huge fields of golden rice. He has lots of tiny little plots scattered around the area, wedged up against their neighbors.
4: <laughs>
3: Reading the book, it's easy to imagine Masanobu-san's farm as rustic, maybe surrounded by forest or a patchwork of farms. I did not imagine... Is this a train or a highway? Highway. Highway. Oh, wow, it's a big highway. That one of Hiroki-san's rice fields would be almost literally underneath a highway overpass. This is your rice? We park next to a little triangular rice field, wedged between the highway and a train track, surrounded by houses. And looking at the rice paddy, it's sort of… ordinary. The ground is bare cracked mud with tidy rows of rice plants, well, the stubs that are left after harvest. And it looks just like any other rice paddy in Japan after it's been drained. So is Shizen noho happening here anymore? Hiroki-san is doing a couple of things differently from Masanobu-san. He doesn't direct seed the rice, but transplants rice seedlings in late spring, like most farmers do. And he keeps his fields flooded now. He says that's because he has to cooperate with neighbors who share the waterways. But I do see something special. The harvested rice is hanging to dry in the field on wooden racks called hasa. Rice drying on the hasa is just such a classic early fall scene in Japan, like something from a folktale. But now, instead of cutting bunches of rice by hand and drying them in the sun, a lot of farmers use combines, tractors that can harvest and thresh the rice at the same time, and they dry the grains using machines in a warehouse. Hiroki-san dries all his rice on hasa, and not only is it a beautiful sight, sun-dried rice tastes really good. The rice bundles hang upside down, making a thick golden curtain. Hiroki-san grows two varieties in this field, and one is a kind that his grandfather bred. What's it called? Happy... Happy...
4: Hill. Happy yeah, hiru. Happy Hill.
3: Hiroki san takes one of the panicles in his hand, the threads of grain at the end of the rice stalk. Mm. How is it different? Like, what's special about it?
4: Mm. There are so many seeds like this, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He
3: says what's special is that it has so many seeds. So many grains. And honestly, I've never seen anything like it. Wow, it really does have a lot of seeds. It's pretty spectacular how many grains are on each stalk. Will you plant something else here in the winter?
4: Winter, this area, Mugi, Mugi, what is it?
3: Hiroki-san has already scattered barley seeds in the field, just like Masanobu-san did, but the reason I don't see them sprouting is the weather. It's been so dry this fall that they haven't germinated yet. I ask Hiroki-san if that's been tough, and he's just like, sometimes it doesn't rain, sometimes it rains a lot. He's right, of course, that we can't control the weather, but I've never seen a farmer so serene about it. In Masanobu-san's writing, natural farming sounds sort of pure, but weather is not the only element outside of a farmer's control. One of the foundational principles of Shizen no Ho is no herbicides, pesticides, or fertilizers. But you can see why it can be very difficult to grow purely organic produce in Japan. The products the neighbors use on their fields inevitably leach into yours. When we visit another of Hiroki-san's rice fields, he explains the neighbors are not practicing natural farming. They do use herbicides. Obviously, not everybody feels they can afford to give up modern interventions, to relinquish a sense of control. But Hiroki-san doesn't seem too stressed out about it. That's just how it is. The rice in this field has already been taken down off the hasa and threshed. Hiroki-san has returned the rice stalks to the field. The straw nourishes the soil, slows the growth of weeds, and protects seeds from birds. Most farmers would chop up the straw, but Masanobu-san insisted on leaving the straw whole, like fallen grasses in a wild meadow. And here, Hiroki-san's field is exactly what I pictured while reading The One-Straw Revolution, He's returned the straw to the field, and as soon as it rains, the barley seeds will sprout from under the scattered stalks.
4: Mm. Mm. Mountain, go Uh, to mountain. Now we're gonna go to the mountain. (laughs) Great.
2: (laughs) Next, it's time to see the mountain. Outside in, we'll be right back. Outside In is a member and listener-supported show. We rely on listeners to take the leap to donate to support the reporting. If you're able, it's quick and easy. Just go to our website, outsideinradio.org, and click
0: Donate. And thank you so much. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal.
2: Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new.
4: My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet, the emptiness and the harshness, really, I found transformative.
0: Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't <laughs> eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. Yeah. Join
2: me, Valai Aracopley. Every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. And on this episode, writer Hannah Kirschner visits Hiroki Fukuoka, Masanobu Fukuoka's grandson, on their family farm to see if and how Shizen Noho lives on today. And now they're headed to see the mountain.
4: Mountain. Go to mountain. Now we're going
2: to go to the mountain? Great. The mountain orchard, where when Masanobu Fukuoka quit his job to start experimenting with natural farming, he killed 400 of his father's trees. But it's also where he eventually figured out how to work in cooperation with the existing ecosystem. And where Hiroki Fukuoka now grows most of his citrus. Here's Hannah again. In a little van rattling its way up the mountain.
4: <laughs>
3: While we drive up the narrow, winding road, I ask Hiroki san about something in the One Straw Revolution. Masanobu san claimed that his farm's yield were equal to or superior to nearby farms that used commercial chemicals and processes. Is that really possible? <laughs> Oh, it's not impossible but difficult to have the same yields. Hmm. Hiroki-san says that yes, it is possible to have similar yields, but it takes skill, technique, and the ability to see. And realistically, the yield probably averages about 80% of what you'd get on a conventional farm. But the real challenge, he says. Is that it's not easy to sell the produce most japanese supermarkets sell perfectly uniform fruits and vegetables wrapped in styrofoam and plastic even bananas the expectations of both consumers and retailers make it hard for farmers to sell fruit that's the wrong size or shape masa san pointed out what a waste that was and he also got frustrated with retailers who went too far in the other direction who marketed his produce as an expensive specialty good. He argued that his method required fewer materials and less labor, so the produce should actually be less expensive for consumers. While we're chatting, we pass other farmers' kiwi orchards and bamboo groves, some tree plantations and forest. It takes about 10 minutes to reach the top of the mountain.
0: (laughs) My
4: farm.
3: Oh, this is your farm. Oh, we're really high up. From up here, you can see across the Seto Inland Sea all the way to Hiroshima Prefecture. The citrus orchard is even more wild than I expected. More like sort of an open forest with dozens of varieties of citrus. There are butterflies and dragonflies landing on the leaves, soft grasses and bushy vines growing between them. I feel like I've stepped into the book, and then I notice it. Wait, is it
4: daikon?
3: Masanobu-san grew vegetables between the trees in the orchard. He described scattering vegetable seeds here and there on the hillside, sometimes by tossing clay seed balls. He never cleared the ground, and he said the vegetables grew surprisingly strong and flavorful.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> Hiroki san still does this, and finding the vegetables among the trees is like foraging. What, what vegetables are
4: there? <laughs>
3: I see the leaves of burdock and daikon radish, and Hiroki-san tells me there are a couple kinds of beans and spinach,
4: spinach. Mm.
3: ten kinds of vegetables in all. He does harvest some of these things to eat, and occasionally sells some of them. But the point of these vegetables isn't really to eat them. They do a lot of work to improve the soil. Some of the root vegetables go unharvested and they rot and become like sponges. They allow water and air to penetrate the earth. The beans and peas? They pull nitrogen from the air and it becomes part of the soil when they decompose. The orchard is peaceful and thriving. But, it took Masanobu-san and Hiroki-san decades to get here. Years of experiments. Those lessons can't just be applied overnight to other places, to very different kinds of farms like vast corn and soy fields in the U.S. It takes time to learn to work with the rhythms of each microclimate, to find a balance that doesn't depend on technology. And getting there usually entails losses that it's hard to imagine large-scale commercial farms taking on. It's challenging enough for the weekend farmer, impatient to get started, who decides to speed up the process with plowing, or, flustered by insects eating their crops, chooses the convenience of pesticides. And so, even if it could be more widely adopted, Shizen Noho remains pretty fringe. Looking around the orchard, I don't see the rustic huts that Masanobu-san described, where people used to stay when they made the pilgrimage to learn from him. But there's a new hut with big windows overlooking the view of the inland sea. It has a tiny kitchen, and this is where they take breaks from the summer heat. There are some seed balls on the ground in front, and Hiroki-san says his eight-year-old son was making them with his friends a few days ago. Akiko-san, Hiroki-san's wife, is waiting for us inside, and she pours us hibiscus tea and serves crackers with jam she made from hibiscus flowers. I ask about how they eat, because Masanobu-san was concerned not just with farming naturally, but living naturally, and he believed diet was part of that. He could be pretty extreme. He wrote, When people rejected natural food and took up refined food instead, society set out on a path towards its own destruction. This is because such food is not the product of true culture. Anyway, Hiroki-san says he gets up early, so he makes his own breakfast.
4: ワカメスープ。Today,
3: it was simple seaweed soup and not brown rice, as Masanobu-san advocated,
4: <laughs>
3: but bread. <laughs> Akiko-san and Hiroki-san tell me they grow about half of what they eat, but the rest comes from the supermarket. They like to buy organic, to support like-minded farmers, but they don't worry about it too much.
4: Yeah, i buy
3: But what I really
4: love
3: (laughs) is hearing that Hiroki-san likes junk food. (laughs) I ask him about Masanobu-san. Did he eat junk food? And Hiroki-san tells me his grandfather had a real sweet tooth. He loved sweets, like, you know, the gifts people would bring when they visited the farm, and he drank a lot of coffee, usually instant coffee. He'd make himself five cups a day and put a ton of sugar in it. It was worth coming all this way just to hear that. Masanobu-san can seem like such a mythical figure. It's easy to forget that behind the one straw revolution was a real person, someone who was maybe a little contradictory.
4: So, when when you were a child, what did you think of your grandfather? Like, were you very close with him, or?
3: Hiroki-san says, Masanobu-san might've had a stoic image, but, and I'm quoting now, he was a really kind and gentle granddad. Basically, the classic image of the kind, beloved grandfather that I think everyone around the world probably knows. hidoki san is carrying on his grandfather's legacy, but he doesn't do every little thing the same way. He has a different relationship with Shizen no ho. He says, Masanobu-san investigated, researched, thought, about how to grow things using natural methods, and once he figured one thing out, then he went on to think about and explore the next thing. Essentially, he was a philosopher, but Hiroki san is a farmer. Farming is how Hiroki san makes a living and supports his family, and they seem pretty comfortable. He needs to be able to grow the same crop year after year, and he needs to sell
4: it
3: hiroki son says his grandfather was, and now I'm quoting, a strong proponent of natural farming, but whether he actually achieved that, well... This is a bit of an awkward conversation, but… I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there's still a lot of room to think about how to do this work. (laughs) He says other approaches, like permaculture, regenerative agriculture, they're all climbing the same mountain, even if their root is different. Hiroki-san says, I have come to believe that there is a core of reality, a truth in Masanobu's ideas. And based on that, I've tried to think about how I can incorporate those ideas in my own way, into my own
4: life through
3: farming, growing food.
2: Writer Hannah Kirschner. Masanobu Fukuoka expressed that he did not like to be imitated, that he grew frustrated when he was, when students focused on him rather than his message, To live with nature. No, there is nothing special about me, he wrote, but what I have glimpsed is vastly important. This was the second and final episode of our series on Masanobu Fukuoka and his method of do-nothing farming. For links to more reading and lots of pictures, visit our website, outsideinradio.org. This episode was made in collaboration with Hannah Kirschner. Her book is called Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. It was written and reported by Hannah Kirshner and me, Justine Paradise. I also mixed and produced the episode. We were edited by Taylor Quimby with additional editing from Felix Poon and Outside In's executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. We had translation help from Michael Thornton. Special thanks to Tim Cruz and the Land Institute, ethnobotanist Justin Robinson, Jeffrey Gray of Fenlake Farm, Paul Quirk of Ishiharaya Farm, Bill Vitek, and Atsushi Tada and Taro Nakamura, who work with the Masanobu Fukuoka Natural Farm. Music in this episode came from Patrick Patricios and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a member-supported podcast. We rely on listeners like you to make the leap to support the show by donating, if you're able. And you can do that at outsideinradio.org. And thank you so much. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.